section 21st from Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Petition The third day of April, which dawned over Brussels fair as a refined silver, found Renée at her post leaning from her narrow window, its harsh stone frame serving as a somber setting for her face, so unconsciously beautiful and so sadly serene. She saw the prince right away with this gentleman. The long green cloak in which he was wrapped could not quite conceal the glitter of the order of the golden fleece flaming on his breast. Renée knew that he was going to attend the regent in council, for this was the day that confederates or covenanters, as they were severally named, were to present their petition to Madame Pomer. And to date, instead of going downstairs to her duties beside Annie, Renée put on hood and cloak of black cloth over her white linen wimple, and her dark yellow gown, and went from the palace and out through the great gates into the street. She allowed herself this much advantage from the secret hold she had over Annie. This one day's holiday, the night before she had told her mistress of her intention, and Annie had said nothing. It was strange to be in the streets after the long confinement in the palace and the palace gardens. It was strange to be one of the people amidst the ordinary life of a great city after having been so long merely part of the machinery of a princely establishment. Renée received a sense of energy, of hope, of courage in thus finding herself free and one of the crowd. She wished she could learn some trade or art by which she could earn her own living, but she was too old to be taken as apprentice, and even were she not, she had not sufficient money to keep herself while she acquired it, nor of one friend or relation to whom she could appeal to help her. No, there was no means of life open to Renée but the one she was following, especially in these times of ruin and panic, when so many people were out of work, and those who had money were clutching it tight. But she was not one to be daunted even by hopeless difficulties. She asked so little of life, cared so little when it ended, that if she had been considering only herself, she would have left any service and tried to find another great lady to take her, or have gone as a servant into some protestant family. But she stayed with Annie because to wait on his wife, to control her, to soften her furies, to check her excesses, was the sole poor unknown service she could render the man for whom she would have gladly done anything. And now that she knew any sordid and shameful secret, she had a power, an influence over her such as none other possessed. 
could restrain her and bring her to some reason when all else has failed. The prince might entreat his wife to appear on some state occasion, and she would lutely refuse. And when Renée insisted, she would suffer herself to be untied and go. So with a sigh, Renée relinquished her fleeting dreams of freedom and a sane, wholesome life among her own people. And she moved further into the city. She felt with overmastering pain how lonely she was, how utterly lonely. All of the companies she passed—women together, families, men with their wives and sisters—emphasized the terrible feeling of her loneliness. If it had not been for Philip and the Holy Inquisition, her life would not have been broken, her heart seared. She would have been as one of these. She would have had parents, money, position, friends, probably a lover, in a word, happiness. Then she remembered that she was only one of thousands left desolate, perhaps more desolate than she was. Fifty thousand, she had heard, had died under the Inquisition and edicts, and how many aching, maddened hearts had each of these deaths left behind? Renée felt rebuked in her complaint of her loneliness. She shuddered as she went down the hill to the church of Saint Gudiel. Shuddered though, the spring breezes were soft and the spring sun warm. On the steps of the church, she paused and looked down at the city lying in the hollow of the hills. All the spines and veins of the town hall and the palace. Of the various skies in the marketplace, rising delicate and erect into the pale and pure sky, while on all the irregular, tumble-looking roofs and gables, the sun changed lead to gold and casement glass to diamonds. She turned, lifted the heavy curtain at the lower door into the greater door. And entered the church whose twin towers she had watched so constantly that they had come to mean to her the papist power which dominated the land. She had not been in Roman church since she was a child, and had crept into the great church of Saint Baron at Ghent. She had not meant to enter this now, but a fascinated sense of horror drew her on. Horror, because she could not regard this faith with toleration, it stood to her for an abdomen of idolatry, cruelty, wickedness, oppression, and uncharitableness. She was not a Protestant by chance, but her own nature detested the Church of Rome. She stepped forward into the gloom, pulling her hood further over her eyes. She could distinguish nothing but the seven thick wax candles burning on the altar and the red lamps flickering their eternal light before the shrines. Then, from the mystical shadow, began to loom the shapes of pillars, massive yet so dimly colored as to seem impalpable, as if they were beneath the sea. Rockets, marbles, altars set with jasper, 
silver, and the chrysolite became visible in the side chapels. Here and there, the rapt faces of angels showed from some dark paintings on the wall. The air was redolent of the incense, the wax smoke, and the scent of flowers. This mingled perfume was near as ancient as the church, which had remained for so long enclosed from the light and air that it seemed as if built underground. Such light as there was streamed richly from the colored glass windows, where saints and bishops blazed together in wheels and panels of glory. Renée fixed her eyes on the high altar, which was flushed with a shadow-like golden-red wine, in the middle of which the flat gold, ruby-studded doors of the shrine that held the entrance flashed and shone like the eye of God itself. Beyond, the pillars and arcs of the Lady Chapel rose up dim, and appearing of a translucent quality, in the shade. Was here flushed with the light from gold-colored windows, was sea green and amber behind the crimson of the altar. Round the huge candlesticks of dark red Florentine copper were alabaster bowls, almost transparent, veined with violet, which held the first lilies of the year in sweet clusters. The lilies from wood and field. Called Easter lilies from the time of their coming. The church was empty, save for here and there the dark bent figures of a peasant before some inside altar. Renée could not bring herself to bend the knee before the idols her father had perished to dimsum. And with a trembling in her limbs, as if some physical power had seized her. And a choking in her throat, as if the sweet thick air was poisonous, she turned and fled quickly into the pale sunshine without. The excited people were already beginning to gather to watch the passing of the petitioner on their way to the palace. Renée did not know which way the procession was to pass, and she was largely ignorant of the city. But she followed the direction which the great mass of the crowd was going. She particularly noticed this crowd and its demeanor, the somberness, the earnestness, the silence of these people. None of them seemed to be treating the occasion as a festival or as a holiday. If they showed a certain satisfaction, it was grave and serious. Very few of them were armed. And all of them were restrained in gesture and speech. There were some gentry on foot and on horse, but the great number were boors, traders, and apprentices belonging to the seven great guilds of Brussels. Renée, following in the wake of this crowd, climbed the hill again, left the towers of Saint Gudule below. And came out on the heights above the town, where stood the parks and mansions of the great nobles, and Babylon Palace, which was the residence of the regent.
as she passed the palace, Rene caught sight of the spare figure and excited face of the squire Dupris, as he pushed his way through the crowd. Rene was disgusted to think the man was still in Brussels. She had hoped that he would find it wise to leave the Netherlands or at least the town. But promptly he had given up his dangerous occupation of rhetoric player, and with the spoils of the Nassau mansion, had established himself as a respectable papist. Now a great movement shook the crowd. A low hum rose from the throats of the men, and the women began to tiptoe excitedly and to lift their little children to their shoulders. Rene was at the back and could see nothing. But the two men who had a point of vantage on the steps of the mansion nearby gravely helped her up beside them. One asked her if she was a Fleming. My father was hand for a heretic in Gent, answered Rene, and I am in the service of Prince of Orange. It gave her pleasure to mention the prince and not his wife. And it was truly his service in which she was. The two men took off their caps to her. Spaniards will not hand many more Netherlands, one remarked, and they supported Rene against the balustrade of the step, so that she could see over the heads of the closely packed people. Suddenly, the humming changed into a clapping of hands and a deep shouting that made Rene. Blood tingled with excitement and deep emotion. She pushed back the hood from her flushed face and gazed at perception, which now appeared marching up the street and turning in at the splendid gates of the palace. All were on foot and unarmed. All were nobles, many of the highest rank, and all were young and gorgeously attired, so that it was a magnificent procession. Such as all the great festivals of Brussels had not seen before, which now wound under the portals of the Brabant Palace. He who goes first, said the man next to Rene, is Philip de Belleau, and some think it an ill augury that he should be lame," remarked the other loudly. Rene had indeed remarked that the young nobleman who led the petitions halted unmistakably, and he in the black and blue added her informant, straining his voice to make it heard above the clapping and the shouting, with the look of fire, who is answering the cries of people, is Nicholas de Hames, whom they call Golden Fleece, and he behind in the stable cloak, is. Saint Adelgold. Rene had already recognized those who, as well as several others, whom she had seen at the Nassau Palace, and as the rich and brilliant company of gentlemen passed before her, there were several of the eager, proud young faces she knew as related to some of the noblest families of the land. The enthusiasm of the crowd came almost. Piteous in its eager gratitude to those nobles who were making themselves the champions of the people, and protesting so openly and in such an imposing fashion against the loath Spaniards and the loath Inquisition. 
encouraging shouts, adjurations, blessings, and thanks were showered on the petitioners, and some of the more reckless, as Golden Fleece and the same Eldergond, replied by shouting curses on Inquisition and the Cardinalists. Rene recognized Count Kommenberg and Count Vanderberg, the Prince of Orange's brother-in-law. Glittering in French brocades and Genoa's velvet, and great chains about their necks and around their heads. Finally, closing the procession, came the two leaders, Henry Bradderod and Ruiz of Nassau. They walked alone, arm in arm. The last of all, and for them, the affectionate greetings of the crowd aroused a frenzy. Count Branderold looked fitted to be the hero of such a moment. His tall and noble figure, his military carriage, his handsome face flushed with pleasure and triumph, his eyes sparkling with a necklace fire, the four locks of blond hair streaming on to his falling ruff, gave him the kingly presence of a leader of men. He wore a suit of Rose cloth of silver, and a great mantle of peacock-colored velvet. In his high black hat was a long heron's feather clasped by a diamond. Besides his grandeur, Louis of Nassau looked very slight and youthful. He was more sombrely dressed in dark blood red, with a great ruff of many points rising up above his face, and a rest. Randerold appeared mightily at his ease and greatly pleased with his toss and his reception. Louis held himself more modestly and looked grave and even anxious, for there was about him a gallantry almost moving. And so the last of them went into the palace, and the crowd broke up and stayed about in groups, talking eagerly together in excited voices. While they waited for the reappearance of the petitioners, Rene wandered into a side street and entered a baker's shop, which was filled with tired women and children. The waiting woman bought bread and cake and a kind of a sweetmeat, and while she ate, she listened to the conversation that flowed around her, like many currents of the one river. From the theme was always the same: the executions, the torturings, the ruin falling on trade and work. And all spoke sombrely, without laughter or jest. Many had eyes swollen and afraid from weeping. One only was unconcerned: a small child who stood in a world of his own. Oblivious to the talk of death and ruins crossing above his head, while his eyes were fixed with an eager, smiling look on the piece of sweetmeat Rene held, she found something marvelous and yet terrible in this utter absorption of the child in his own thoughts, in his calm and his pleasure. She put a sweet into his hand and left the shop. For more than an hour, she wandered about the street, and when she made her way back to the Bourbon Palace, the petitions were beginning to leave.
reports of their audience. They have been passed from soldiers and servants within the palace to those without, who already rifle among the crowd and eagerly repeated from one to the other. The regent had wept when Baradot had made his speech. The tears had run down her face while the famous compromise was read. And when all the members of the deputation had came forward, one by one, to make the carol before the Duchess as a mark of respect, and she had thus had time to severally note their appointments, their importance, and their number. Her agitation had increased, so that Baramont had tried to reassume her. What, madam? he had said. Do you fear these beggars? who do not know enough to manage their own estates, and then must need prate of state affairs? Had I my way, they should leave the palace quicker than they came. This is the colonist who reported to have uttered loudly enough to reach the ears of some of the gentlemen, who repeated among themselves with wrath and indignation. René waited until the prince came from the palace, he rode out of the gates with Edmond, looking unhappy and troubled. At his side, the two grandees were greeted less warmly than the confederates, as neither had openly sided with the people, and as Edmond, at least, was a strict Catholic and something of a persecutor. They were not so popular as they had been in the days when they caused the downfall of Cardinal Granville. René stood in the roadway, where the passing of the prince cast dust on her ground. She had one glimpse of his dark, ardent face, and he was gone. Suddenly, she felt very tired. The strangeness, the unnaturalness of her life, without home or tires, without friends or interests or diversions, and always supervised by a dull and ceaseless tyranny, waited on her with the horror of tragedy. And this deep, concealed passion, this strong faith, this devotion that lit this dreary life like a beacon on a desert, was not in the nature of comfort, nay, rather it was the light that lit up dullness, dreariness, and the barrenness which darkness would have mercifully concealed, had not all the suppressed feeling in her breast turned to this worship. She might have been happier, for she would not have known so keenly what she loved, as it was she knew not even the peace of apathy. Clouds were gathering over the April sky as she returned to the palace. Everyone talked of the petition and what success it was likely to have. The streets were all filled with murmurs of hope, of doubt, of eagerness, and of expectation. This is the end of section 21st.